especially in the beginning, everybody's winging it, right? Everybody's winging it, especially if it's coming from an organic place like it was for us. Like we were literally in the kitchen mixing product. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Beatrice Dixon, to our show today. Beatrice is the founder of The Honeypot Company, a plant-based feminine hygiene line created with a goal to provide women with healthy alternatives to feminine care. The Honeypot Company began with a dream, literally. In 2014, Beatrice was struggling with an ongoing case of bacterial vaginosis. She visited her doctor and tried everything they recommended, but nothing worked. Then one early morning, she was visited by her grandmother in her dreams. She gave Beatrice a list of ingredients and told her what to do. When Beatrice woke up, she immediately went to Whole Foods, where she was working at the time, got the ingredients, and within a few days, the infection was completely gone. It was at this stage Beatrice started working on the Honeypot Company and giving away the product to friends and seeing their results. Fast forward to today, the company sells their products nationwide at Target, Walmart, Whole Foods, Walgreens, and retailers across the U.S. Beatrice has also been featured on many media outlets, including the Today Show, the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Essence, and Forbes. We'll talk to Beatrice about scaling her business from her kitchen to mass production, advice she has about getting her product into retail outlets, candid thoughts around fundraising, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Beatrice. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Yasmin. I'm so excited. I am a big fan of your brand. And actually, when I was doing research, I knew a bit about you, but I am so inspired by who you are, how you show up as an entrepreneur, your positivity through so many ups and downs that you've experienced. So I can't wait for our listeners to learn more about you because I know they're going to leave so inspired. So thank you again. That's kind to hear you say thank you. I want to jump right in. What I find so interesting about your story is you have a very unconventional background, right? A lot of people think becoming a founder, you have to go down a certain path, get certain credentials. I'd love for you to talk more about your life before Honeypot because you had so many interesting experiences under your belt. (laughs) Did I, man? (laughs) Because, you know, the crazy shit, man, is that I've done everything that you can imagine to live and survive, you know? I was a pharmacy technician right out of high school. And that job actually took me to Atlanta because I was living in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where I grew up. You know, I kind of moved around a little bit, but ended up right back in Phoenix because you have to go back to home base. You know, when you're young and you want to move and do your thing, it may not work out, right? And that was what happened with me. It didn't work out. And so I ended up going back to Phoenix And then I maybe like a year after, because I I didn't love Phoenix. I said that I wanted to live in Atlanta or New York. And I said, wherever I got a job is where I would go. And so I ended up getting a job at Emory Hospital. I've done all types of pharmacy, right? I've done retail. I've done hospitals. I've done IV rooms. I've done compounding labs. Like you name it, I've done it. But the beautiful thing about that is that gave me the know-how on how to put things together, how to do the math when you're trying to make a formula. And then from there, I got tired of working in pharmacy. I thought I wanted to go to school to be a doctor. I started that process. 
But then I realized I hated school. I didn't enjoy going to class, right? It just wasn't my thing. I just felt like it wasn't a good use of my time. And that's no disrespect for anybody that does love school. I'm a person who can't do things unless I'm fully in it, you know? And so I decided to come out of pharmacy altogether and I went to work for Whole Foods. But in between Whole Foods and coming out of pharmacy, I had also started a cleaning business. So let me not glaze over that. So I started a cleaning business, but that turned into cleaning, organizing, cooking, whatever people needed type of a thing, because I just needed to make money. Me and my business partner, Tasha, who still has the cleaning business, it's called Prestigious Touch. We did that for a few years, but then I decided that that was just too much work because people wanted us to clean. They didn't want an employee to clean, right? So that meant that my time, I wasn't making money unless I was cleaning. So I was like, "Mm, this doesn't feel right. Then that's when I got the job with Whole Foods, actually if I'm really thinking about it. And I was still doing my little hustles on the side because I've just had to do that shit. Cause I, you know, I'm not above anything, by the way. Like if I got to fucking clean somebody's toilet to make sure that I have food and shelter, I'm here for that. I'm not going to be without my basic needs. So my hustle is ridiculous. And I think that that was just developed because I lived in Atlanta and there was nobody else there for me but me. And my mommy didn't make the kind of money where she could be taking care of me and taking care of her. And so I had my side hustles, but then I went to work at Whole Foods. But Whole Foods was dope because Whole Foods taught me how to eat. They taught me a lot about herbs. Then they really, I don't know how they are now, but they really invested in their employees They sent us on health immersions and they sent us to farms to learn about the products we sold. And we were constantly meeting with companies that sold supplements and skincare. And and they would come in and talk about their brands. And I was like, oh, shit, I think I want to do something like this, you know. And then my coochie started acting up. (laughs) Exactly. Which we need to talk about. (laughs) Thank goodness it did, because so much came after that. Thank goodness it did. Like I take those moments even to this day. So I actually appreciate when those things happen now because I'm like, oh, goody, goody. I'm going to figure something out, you know. So I worked at Whole Foods and then I, I left Whole Foods and I went to be a food broker. And that's where I learned how to talk to buyers and how to build relationships. And then I left there and went to work for a food startup called Rhythm Superfoods. So between Whole Foods and Rhythm Superfoods, Honey Pot has started. So I was running Honey Pot with my extremely small team and my co-founder brother, and I was working a full-time job. Yeah. And I know you did that. And we'll get yes. into that in a little bit for three years, but I'd love to just kind of pause and go back a bit about how the idea even came about, because it's pretty remarkable, you know, a little bit about your health journey and what you kind of did to cure yourself and how that came about, I think would be super helpful yeah. to learn more about. So I had bacterial vaginosis for almost a year. I would literally go to the doctor. I would take medicine. I would go on Google, which is not what you should do. Always scares you, right? You're like, oh my God. <laughs> don't go to Google, like hard tea. Don't take a time out. Don't do that, right? Exactly. But I did it because I was desperate and literally nothing that I did worked, nothing. But in 2012, maybe it was like late 2011, I had a very vivid dream with my grandmother and we were just sitting down at a table talking 
And she handed me a piece of paper and basically told me that this was going to solve my problem. And on the paper was a list of ingredients. Crazy. And, you know, it's crazy because in the dream, I thought to talk to her because she died when my mother was a child. So Mm. I've never met her in real life. Right. So I was trying to take that moment and she was like, no, 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 that's not why I'm here. Like, I'm here for what's on the paper and you need to memorize that. And so that's what I did. I just kept saying the ingredients over and over and over again. And then finally, she told me to wake up. And so when I woke up, it's pretty gnarly because when I woke up, I woke up saying the ingredients. I woke up saying, you know, lavender, apple cider. Like I woke up saying everything and then I wrote it down because I kept a book by my bed then. And then because I worked at Whole Foods at the time, I went to the store and I just bought all the stuff that she told me to buy, right? All the stuff that was on the list. And so within a couple of days, I had all this stuff and then I created a formula and then I started using it. And then within four to five days of that, everything that I was dealing with, because I had BV at the moment, went away. Oh my goodness. I mean, the story is pretty amazing. I have goosebumps just listening to you share it. But you mentioned you had a book by your bed. I mean, was interpretation of your dreams common? Are you very much in touch with your dreams in general? Yes, (laughs) especially at this point in my life. Wow. I don't discount my dreams because when we go down to sleep, it's almost like your consciousness goes to a different place, right? And at this time, I wasn't thinking about it the way that I think about it now. Sure. At that time, I was just dreaming a lot, but I had, I was also doing a lot at that time, right? I had fully initiated into my spirituality that I practiced. Mm. I was going through a year in white. I shaved off all my hair. I had to keep my hair covered, had to be at home in a certain time. Like, so there was a lot that was going on. And so because that's where I was placing my energy. Yeah my third eye energy was open in a different way. And so I was dreaming nonstop and I still do. Mm-hmm. Now, do I keep a book by my bed? Not necessarily because I really, I remember my dreams. And if I feel like it was monumental enough, I'll just wake up, take some notes and just keep it moving. It's pretty incredible because I know, and we'll go back to just the origin story of the company, but you talk a lot about how you are very much aligned with your gut and any business or life decision, you don't force it, which I think as an entrepreneur, you can easily do, right? And you really feel like you're guided and have faith that the right decision or opportunity will come about. I'd love to hear your perspective on that because that's something that I try to remind myself every day, especially when you're in the unknown world of being an entrepreneur, right? Nothing's predictable. Nothing is predictable (laughs) and anything that can happen will happen, right? There's so much that you are not in control of, but I am heavily engaged with my intuition and with my consciousness. A lot that I do comes from that, but that's my way. That doesn't mean that that needs to be your way. Mm -hmm. That's just what has worked for me. And that's the muscle that I've been building for years because that's just what's worked for me. That's how I run my entire life. And for me, my business is my life, Mm -hmm. right? For me, it's not separate. Like I'm in Amsterdam right now and I'm living my life. I'm doing the things I want to do personally. And then I'm stopping and I'm taking a meeting and then I'm going to eat and then I'll go. So like for me, everything goes together. I'm very, very, very focused on and check into 
what my soul and what my energy and what my intention wants and what's wrong and right based off of that. But there also is a lot of decisions that are made through data. But I think that it's really important as a founder that you are engaged with yourself, with your gut, with your mind. And what's required when you're doing that is you really got to be in it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you really got to be engaged. That doesn't mean that you have to be a micromanager because I'm not. That doesn't mean that you have to be a part of every single conversation, but you need to really understand what's happening throughout your business model, throughout the whole thing, right? And I think that that requires having the right leadership team who are even more ingrained into it than what you are because they have to be in the little things, right? They have to be ingrained in the little things that happen on a daily basis. The way that I run the company for my particular job function within the company is is probably a little bit different than the way that most people do it. But again, it works for me. Yeah. And actually, I've heard that a lot from the women I've interviewed in terms of the power of really dialing into your intuition and following your gut. Of course, right? You still need to be involved with the business and look at the data. But we hear that so often that clearly it's a recipe for success because of how often we hear it. So it's beautiful to see how much it's involved in your own life. And going back to, you know, you had this formula that your grandmother shared with you in your dream. It worked for you. At that point, did you know it wanted to be a business? Like, What did you do in those very early days of getting it to the next step? Because so many women listening might have an idea, might have a business in mind and really aren't sure what the next step should be. (laughs) Nobody is sure, first of all. (laughs) Let's get that shit out the way. Yeah. I feel like people don't realize that, especially in the beginning, everybody's winging it, right? Everybody's winging it, especially if it's coming from an organic place like it was for us. Like we were literally in the kitchen mixing products. It wasn't like I went to business school, right? It wasn't like that. It wasn't that kind of a business model. So the crazy thing is that the moment that I realized that it worked, yeah, I was like, oh, this is what I do now. Literally, this may be a TMI moment, but I'm, I'm here for TMI moments. I'm literally on the toilet wiping myself, smelling myself, because that was something that happened, right? Mm-hmm. Like I had so much PTSD around what I had been dealing with for a year that I was constantly that self-conscious, mm. right? And so when I realized that it was only four or five days into using what my grandmother had given me, And it worked like she said it would. Literally, my very next thought was like, oh, this is it. I don't do anything else now. Like this has become my life's work. And it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of figuring it out. It's a lot of Googling. It's a lot of cold calling. It's a lot of focus and intention and being willing to make mistakes. So again, nobody is, especially in the beginning years, Nobody knows what they're doing. And don't let anybody tell you that that they do. The magic sauce in when you are a first-time founder, it's the first time you're doing your thing. You may have never even had a business before. You can't think about what you don't know. Mm-hmm. You can't make the energy of what you don't know be the reason why you don't try to figure it out. It's all in your action. If you want to figure it out, guess what'll happen? you'll figure that shit out, right? 100%. Because you have to, right? I didn't go to business school. 
there was no six figure job at the end of my career. That just was not in my pipeline. The last job that I had, maybe I made $65,000 a year. It's more than what a lot of people make, right? But to me at that point in my life, I was making good money. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. But good money is relative, Exactly. you know? So I think it's important if you're just starting out, just be willing to do whatever it is that you have to do. Be willing to ask questions. Be willing to get on Google, be willing to be wrong, be willing to like be the person that does everything, be willing to run your business and have a full time job at the same time. Be willing to just do anything that it takes to get it done. Exactly. And I'm laughing here because you're saying everybody's winging it. For my company, we had our first real manufacturing run yesterday and I was there till 10 p.m. And I am just figuring it out as it goes and everything is amazing. But I came home and I was like, okay, how can I do this better? Like, who can I talk to? I know there's a better way. So you're just always learning. And you're just always learning. Exactly. And I know now you're running a multi million dollar company. There's one thing that you said that I think really resonates. You know, you when you first came up with this product, I know you were gifting it to a lot of friends and family and you were really dialing in the formula for, I think it was around two years and you kept your full-time job, like you said, for three and a half years. So I'd love to know at what point did you realize, wow, like this could be a business. I've really dialed in the formula. I see the interest. Like what was that moment for you? For me, that moment, sister, was all the way in the beginning. Hmm. There has never been a moment, not one time, to this day that I have ever questioned if this was a business, if this was viable, if this could be massive, right? If Honey Pot could be a household, not one time have I ever questioned that. So when I was giving it away, I was giving it away because I needed to make sure that it worked because I had the intention of making it work, right? Even though we didn't have money for clinical trials and all those things, that was our version of a clinical trial, you Mm -hmm. know, and we did that for a year and a half. For me, it was at the very beginning. And then once we got launched, my brother was down, like he was willing to do whatever it took, but he was also financing it, right? Mm -hmm. And, And helping with everything. And I literally had to get on my hands and knees and beg him because I needed help right? To figure out how we we went to the Barana Brothers hair show, but that shit was going to be expensive. There's thousands of people walking around at the Barana Brothers hair show, right? You have to buy the booth. You have to make the booth cute. You know, you have to come with a bunch of product, which meant a bunch of bottles, caps, ingredients, labels, some branding. There was so much that had to happen, Mm -hmm. right? And I literally got on my hands and knees and was like, bro, if this shit doesn't work, I will never ask you for a penny again, but I know it's going to work. And he was like, okay, cool, let's go. And literally, this was another stamp that told me that we had something. Literally, within three days, we sold like 600 bottles of product. Wow. And that told us that we had something. And so we just kept up that same energy. And then I realized that washes aren't consumable enough to bring people back, right? Because if you are in the consumer packaged goods business, you have products that people consume quick because you need them to come back. You need more money. And so what we did was 
we had our washes, but then we went to a pad company, we went to a white company, you know, we went to all these different companies and said, hey, can we just wholesale your products on our website? Mm-hmm. What happened there? We had like a 8X growth the next year. What that told us is that we needed to be a company that did all of those things. So it was literally just being willing to do whatever it took obviously, and then just paying attention to the writing that was on the wall. But to be honest, since the beginning, you know? And I think what you did really well also in the company and you continue to do is really build community. So I know you mentioned you first started out with your product and then you knew you needed to bring in more recurring revenue. So you had wholesale partners Mm -hmm. come in. And I think the number, I think you were making like 45K a year. And then when you brought in your partners, was it the next year you made like over 200,000 a year? It was like 30,000 the first year. And then it went to like 240,000. Girl, I, oh my God, that's amazing. And that, and that's, you, that was a lot of money then. You that's know? still a lot of money, girl. But <laughs> even to see the increase, right? I mean, year over year, that's huge. I mean, that's a big deal. And that's huge. And how are you gaining traction and awareness for your brand then? Because again, you've done such a good job of building community Thank and you. talking to your consumer. Girl, we were on the trade show circuit. Mm. (laughs) I mean, we were at festivals, trade shows, hair shows, exhibitions, women's shows. And the crazy thing is that we would like nine times out of 10, we would be the only brand there talking about feminine care. You're literally in front of thousands of people, right? And so we would use that. We would have people's email. We would have them follow us on Instagram. It got better and better over time. You know, our other co-founder, Linda, she was in charge of really building community and she really built our community organically all the way up until now. But we were doing trades nonstop, nonstop. Then we started going to Expo East and we started going to Expo West. It just kept growing, but that's how we did it. Yep. Because we didn't have a lot of money to heavily invest in direct to consumer and all those things, right? Like we had to do those things. We had to be on some guerrilla marketing shit to make things work because we didn't have capital. And everything that we had went right back into the brand, which is why I still kept a job. And really all of the founders at that point, we only had like one person who was an employee up in but I know you were just trying to support the growth and, you know, a lot of founders aren't paying themselves in the early days. So you're still having this job. And I know you got an email, which is pretty amazing from Target. So <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear, you know, when did you get that email and how is your experience just even interfacing with Target? Because I know that was one of your largest retailers outside of Whole Foods starting it out. It still is. It still is. So, yeah, I mean, we literally just got an email in our support email from Monique Benoit. Wow. Who is a wonderful human who I don't talk to every day, but I consider her a friend and I adore her. She had went to her hairdresser and they were talking about her new post and her new job at Target. And the hairdresser brought up Honey Pot, which is crazy because that's in Minneapolis. But that's what happened. When you think about it, we were on the hair show circuit. Mm. So we were constantly meeting people that did hair who are what? Talking to their customers, right? And so this is where that moment, how we built our business worked out. 
Yeah. She went to get her hair done. <laughs> oh my. And such a unique approach. Cause you're selling feminine care, but you're going to hair shows like that is wow. But think about it. Who's at hair shows humans with vaginas. Yes. Right. So she went to get her hair done. They were talking about her new job at Target. Her hairdresser started talking about Honeypot. She went home, looked us up, sent an email that she wanted to talk to us. And the rest is kind of history. But, you know, if you want me to go into what happened just to help people understand what that process looks like, I can also do that too. I would love that. That would be my next question just to give us, you you don't hear about it enough. So what was that process behind the scenes? Because you have so much advice actually for companies pitching with retailers. Yeah. So for that particular situation, that is not a situation that happens every day, but it does happen, right? When that happens, typically what the retailer does, when it's a first, like if a brand has never been on their shelf, typically what they do is they'll have a couple of touch points with you. So the first conversation will be probably in that email. Second conversation is maybe a 30-minute conversation where you're literally just talking to the buyer, talking about your brand, presenting what you do. If I'm you, I'm pitching all the time, right? You're showing them what you got and you want to show them your top four items. You don't want to go in with just two, Mm -hmm. right? If two is all you got, then that's what you go in with. If one is all you got, you you probably aren't ready because you don't want to just put one product on a shelf at a major market retailer. In our instance, we literally had a first conversation with her over the phone pitched her on prototypes <laughs> and, and it was with our washes and our wipes. And then she then went on to tell me that what she was going to ask us to do was almost virtually impossible, which is some real shit. It's more possible today than it was then because there's so much more access to capital. Now there's so much more access period, right? Because then there, it just wasn't that type of access. You just didn't have the information that you have now. Right. And she kept, throwing out a lot of ifs, if we're able to talk again, if I'm able to make this happen. And I reassured her that we were the sure thing, right? Like if you're going to make it happen with any brand, it needs to be my brand. And this is why. And so you want to go into that conversation, very level-headed, being yourself, not being afraid to really show them what you got. In this instance, we used data that we had from Whole Foods. We used data that we had from our website. You know, Mm -hmm. we used the data that we had. We didn't have a lot of data. We didn't necessarily even know how to read that shit, but it didn't matter. At least we came with something, right? And we showed her what we could do. And literally what I did there is we went, we had a graphic designer that helped us to design out. We already had our, our labeling for our bottles, but we had a graphic designer that helped us build labeling for wipes and build labeling for pads or something. But I think when I talked to her, I just talked to her initially about washes and wipes, right? Under Honey Pot branded product. And then she called us back. And when she called us back, it was to actually go to meet with them in Minneapolis. And when that meeting came, and this is just my style period, even to this day, and it's expensive. What I'm about to say is I'm not going to, shy over it, but it's extremely important to do in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. So what we did, we got the opportunity to go sit in front of her. So this is where we made a proper deck, right? This deck had branding. It talks about the problem and the solution, you know, all the shit that you talk about in the deck. But then when it got to the product page, 
we showed her what we wanted to show her for what we wanted to get on shelf, which was normal and sensitive wash and normal and sensitive wipes. Mm -hmm. But then we showed her where we were going as a brand and where we were going as a brand was where no other brand had gone before. We wanted to have washes and wipes. And then the next thing that we were going to do was going to be our herbal menstrual pads. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't necessarily showing her that to say, this is what we have to put on your shelf for your next category review season. But I just want you to understand where we're going. And then the other thing that I did, so that was properly branded, all the stuff. We actually had our agency that we worked with actually come in and create a mood board and do all the things, right? So it made the buyer feel like she was a part of the process. Mm -hmm. But also it showed her that we knew where we were going. And the most important thing that we did is we went to a prototype company, which is the same prototype company we use to this day. It's called Rapid Prototypes. They're in Bentonville, Arkansas. And we physically got prototypes made for this meeting, which meant that we had to go in with branding and dimensions and all this stuff. So when we went to sit down and talk to our buyer, we went to her with physical product. It's so important that you do that. Mm -hmm. Don't go with a fucking 3D render on a computer screen, right? And the reason for that is is because they're not going to feel like you really have something. This is just, you can do that later in life when you're a bigger brand, you know, and you've launched many products with them and that, you know, you guys have a relationship, you're comfortable. But when you're beginning a relationship, it's just like beginning any relationship. You got to go into that thing intentional and showing them from the beginning how you run your shit. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to show them how committed because prototypes are not cheap. And that communicates to the buyer that you came ready and that you're willing to show them where you're going. And just a hack, I'm not trying to be overzealous with the information, but I think it's important for people to know. There's a hack that you can do when you're getting into retail, right? In the beginning, just start off with one. You just need one. And you want to live there for a couple of years. You don't want to go crazy. Don't try to get anybody else. If you can get Target or Walmart, right? And don't be afraid of Walmart, even if you're a natural brand. Don't be afraid of that shit. People think that it's going to diminish their brand. No, it's not. Walmart has got 4,444 doors, something like that. That's not little. That is massive. Mm -hmm. Right. But a hack that you can do if you get one or the other, stick with them for a year or two, actually. And then what happens is, is you kind of gave them an exclusive in a way because you didn't go anywhere. But it's not really an exclusive because you didn't really present to anybody else anyway. But the hack is, is that you've already given them the leg up. So say it's two years later and you're starting to talk to other retailers, you're just going to show those other retailers what's already been in Target for those years. So then when you have new product and new innovation, which you want to be doing every single year, never go into a category review meeting, which is the meeting that you have yearly, because that's how long it takes to launch a product in a store on a shelf. You never go into that meeting without showing them new innovation, Mm -hmm. right? So the hack is, is you've already given whoever your first retailer was the exclusive. So then when you start talking to retailers, you're going to give them the shit that you already had on the shelf in prior years. When you go back to Target or Walmart or whoever your partner is, you're going to show them the newest, hottest stuff. And you're going to give them an exclusive for six months to a year. 
right? And then the following year, you're going to do what you did, right? You're going to put that stuff on the shelf everywhere else. And what it does is it helps you to build a relationship to your partner who really took you on, who is willing to be the first to market, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we've done. That's kind of been our business model over the years. Why Target has become so near and dear and such a family to us is because they've been willing to go in and they've been willing to be the innovation partner. So there's a give and a take. Everybody has to agree that that's what you're doing, but that's what that hack helps you to do it and helps you to get your products out into the marketplace but it helps you to kind of test it first with your innovation partner and then just keep growing it from there. Exactly. I was going to say, you know, not only is it important to be intentional and build that relationship, like you said, but as you're taking those products, you now know what worked really well and you can take those working products and just times it by a million by putting it into other retailers like Walmart. So it makes sense on all aspects. So I appreciate you being so open about just the behind the scenes of managing that retail relationship. And, you know, one thing I want to make sure we talk about, so you have this amazing relationship with Target. They give you their first purchase order. Clearly that takes a lot of capital, which I know in the (laughs) beginning, right? Your brother was helping you fund, but it was still not at a bigger scale. But I think it was, you know, they gave you the order in January and you had to raise the funding by like April, something pretty ridiculous. So I hate this statistic, but less than 1% of Black female founders get venture funding. So looking at your... Not anymore. Not anymore, anymore, sister. I can't tell you that I know what the statistic is. Yeah. Right. But I think what we have to do in these conversations that we're having, I'm not saying we don't have to pay attention to what is factually happening. And yes, female founders, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think it is more than 1%. At this point, because when you have new voices fund that poured money into so many black owned or just people of color, humans of color, women of color businesses. Right. Mm -hmm. That changed the narrative for their only being, because when me and Cy raised money, I I think that we were (laughs) I don't know if we were like the 30th black owned business or women led business who had raised over a million dollars. Right. But now when new voices fund and then just a few months ago. Goldman Sachs just launched a $10 billion fund, right? There's so many funds that have launched hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that are put towards women of color or humans of color. So I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm not trying to be rude, but I think that it's really important for us to change that vibration of that conversation and come at it from a different angle because things are changing. There is a lot more access. So I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think that it's important for us to lift our vibration and pay attention to what's happening. There is more access and it is more than 1% at this point. Yeah, no. And I'm glad you did because to your point, you know, you can hear those statistics and feel like, okay, like what shot do I have if it's so small, but to your, your point of what you're saying it having that abundant mindset and knowing that things are changing and it's true. Things are changing. I mean, think about how many, like you said, women founded business conversations. We have how many podcasts are related to that. So I definitely agree with you. And I'm so grateful that it absolutely is changing and looking at your own journey, you know, there's still fundamental principles 
or lessons that I'm sure you learned that mm-hmm. are still applicable to anyone, woman or man who is raising yes. from any kind of investor. I'd love to get your viewpoint because you have raised, you know, multiple times, I believe, from that first initial time a few years ago. So any advice or lessons that you've learned that you can share with our audience listening today? Yes. Understand that you don't know what you don't know and be okay with it. Mm. Right. Don't say, you know, something if you don't, if you don't know, just be like, look, I don't know. But guess what? I'll find that shit out and I'll be right back. (laughs) You know, and all of these things that I'm going to say are very cliche, being authentic, dressing how you dress, talking how you talk, showing your personality. Do not be ashamed of your tattoos. Do not be ashamed of your hair color. Be precisely who you are. Walk into that room comfortable as you, right? Because that in the early years, that's what people are investing in. Really in all the years. Because the founder or the founders are the ones that are setting the foundation for the business. So it's really important to show them who you are and to be okay with who you are. That is the biggest thing to me. Like, know what you know. In the beginning, you're going to be nervous because everybody is. But even with your nerves, you got to walk into that room and be a monster. You have to be a force, right? Even when you're scared. And it's okay to say, I'm nervous and I'm scared. You need to have a deck. It needs to be a fine line of imagery, data, numbers, not too many words. You'll lose people and it needs to be concise and understand that the thing that most investors give a fuck about is the data and the numbers. So you want to breeze through and don't live by your deck. If an investor wants to like, you send them the deck the day before you're going to meet with them or the day of, but I would say the day before so that they can live with it a little right? So they come to the meeting with questions, but it's really important that you don't live by it, that you're not just living in the presentation. Go to this slide, next slide, next slide. It's okay to do that because you got to get through the slides, but don't be reading what's on the slide. Go into that room knowing what you're going to talk about and living it. Remember that you do this every single day. You do it every day. You know your business. You know why you need the money. You know how you're going to grow it, right? So really understanding that to a cellular level is important. And understanding the data and the finance, the money, where you are with your margins. I know the consumer packaged goods business. That's the only thing I can give you advice on. I can't give you advice on a technology business. That's not what I do. You need to understand your margins, right? So you need to understand your profit margins. You need to understand what your products are. You need to understand where your products are going. So you're not going to only focus on where you are today. You need to be able to show them that you understand where you want to go in the next three years, five years, 10 years, right? What retail partners do you want to be in? Do you want to exit? Understand that if you're talking to a venture capitalist or a private equity fund, if you're not talking about an exit, you're talking to the wrong people. You need to know your audience. And also make sure that you're raising the right amount of money because that shit communicates. 
if you have the opportunity to go and say you're going into retail, like, I don't think you should raise money unless you have a real good reason to until you know what you're doing with it, which means that I think that you raise money when it's desperation time, in my opinion. And that means you have figured out a way to make millions of dollars. But the only way for you to do it is with some money. But whatever the mechanism that's going to make you the million, it's in your hand. If it's not in your hand, you don't got it. It's speculative. You're not ready to raise no money yet. You got the shit in your hand and I need money. I need a million dollars because I got to fulfill this PO. I got to market this thing. I got to hire some people, right? So if you know that you're going into Target, let's say you're only going into 500 doors. Don't go trying to find half a million dollars. That's not enough money. And if you go and talk to a savvy investor, and you're only trying to raise half a million or 250 or something like that because people tend to think smaller. What that communicates to that investor is you don't really know what you're doing because why are you trying to raise such little money? What are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really important that you go in asking for the right amount of money. Something that I've learned over time. Think about how much money you think you need and double or triple that shit. And I know you were saying when you were fundraising, you had a number in mind that was more and you're grateful you didn't hit it because it all worked out. So I'd love to hear you talk more about that. We wanted to raise a million, but we were only able to raise 725,000 because that's what we were able to raise, yeah. right? That literally paid for branding and it paid for inventory. That's all that it did, yeah. right? And for like a couple of employees, but not leadership, executive employees, right? Mm. And I worked up until the third, no, up until like the sixth month of us being in Target. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because we didn't have bread like that. Yeah. And I couldn't jump ship from my job until Honeypot could pay me more than what I was making. Mm. Right. But you have to make sure that your business can afford that shit. You can't take food out of your business's mouth too early. And so in that case, we raised what we could. Raising money is hard no matter what skin color you are, no matter if you have a penis or a vagina, no matter anything. Raising money is hard, man. And it's even more hard today because there's so many people starting businesses, right? And there's so many people that don't know that starting a business is not instant gratification. It takes time to build that thing, to understand that thing, to scale that thing, right? It used to be. They just wanted you to focus on your top line growth. But that shit isn't a thing anymore. I mean, there was a time where you didn't need to be profitable. They want to understand when are you getting the profitability? When are you going to do these things? That is a point in the conversation. And to go back to what I was talking about earlier with what you need to do when you're raising money, you need to understand what your exit strategy is. So that needs to be a place in your debt where you're beginning with the end in mind. And you need to have a comparative to you, but the comparative needs to be a massive company. And hopefully it's a company who has exited, right? So for us, I think at the time it was Dollar Shave Club. You have to realize this was in 2016, 2017. Since then, Honest Company has IPO'd, but Honest Company was one of our comps. Because at that time, Honest Company was said to be valued at like a billion dollars. 
Dollar Shave Club had sold to Unilever for a billion dollars, right? Then our comp became Sundial at one point. Sundial sold for an absurd amount of money, which was more than, you understand what I'm saying? So you need to, uh, you need to have a comparative in your deck too to satiate whoever it is that you're talking to because you want them to feel like, oh shit, I want to be a part of that. So your deck has to entice them and make them excited. The fact that you have a fish on the hook, that is powerful. And that fish needs to be powerful, right? The fact that you know how you want to grow, what your product line will look like in the future. The fact that you know that you want to exit, make sure that that exit number is big. I'm not saying it has to be a billion, right? But that shit should be in the hundred of millions. So having an exit number and then having a comparative to show that there is a market, there are conglomerates and strategics that want to buy a business like this, Mm -hmm. right? So to me, those are the building blocks for a very beautiful presentation, showing up authentic as you, talking how you talk, being who you are, and being okay with that. Shout out to Alexander Cummings, who taught me the best advice of my life. It changed my life. Everything that you do communicates. Mm. Everything that you do communicates. So when you're ready for that moment, have your head in the game, man. And be scared because the shit is scary, especially if you've never asked somebody for a million dollars before, especially if you're self-sufficient and you take care of yourself. But understand, you need that kind of bread. It takes bread to make bread. This is just what it is. And if you're not trying to go big, why are you even doing this? You know what I mean? Like if your point isn't to be the next billion dollar company, half a billion dollar company, quarter of a billion dollar company, why are you even here? That's what investors want to sign up for. Yeah. And I think definitely your opinion is helpful, but also it's, it's real and very tactical. Like, like you said, you need to know your audience if you're going to go down the investor route, right? If you want to expand your business to target, if you want to be that billion dollar business and you have such big aspirations like you, this might be the way. And you're telling us realities of what it takes and what goes into it, which I love. And I think that's, we need to have more conversations around that. I want to be mindful of our time together and just close on one last question that we like to ask all of our guests is wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth at this stage in your life. What does wealth mean to you? Happiness. Oh, happiness. And just being able to be here right now without it meaning anything more than that. You know, Mm. the money and all the other shit is just a bonus. That's so beautiful. And I know you've mentioned in another interview is like your happiness and self-care and how you show up as a founder just goes to every aspect of your life and your business. So it's so important to focus on joy and happiness, especially when you're leading a big company, right? It is the most important because if you're, and I, I can say this because I have been in times where I was not happy, where I was not well within my mind, where I didn't like how I looked. I just didn't like me. And you're already producing so much cortisol on a daily basis that you're not even conscious of when you're running a company, especially when your company is growing, right? That adding on that second, third, fourth, fifth layer of cortisol and stress because you're not happy with yourself, A, why do that if you can just sort yourself out, right? And then B, in a lot of ways, 
you really can't afford it. Because what is the point of doing all this? Exactly. If it's not going to free you up. So it's extremely important that you take care of your mind, right? Because you need your mind when you're running a company. Your mind, in fact, is like the number one thing you need. So you have got to be okay because you don't want to run into a place where you're not okay, right? And it's going to happen, but you want to get on top of it and be responsible with knowing if you are, if you aren't. And if you aren't, let's figure out why you're not, right? Mm -hmm. Let's figure out what to do to turn that around. Go to the doctor, take medicine, change your diet, meditate, get clear, understand what you like. If you're looking in the mirror, you don't like it. Don't bitch, don't keep saying you don't like it. Why don't you like it? Okay, cool. Be solution oriented. Don't be shameful. Don't make yourself feel bad about things that you have control over. Yeah. So sometimes sadness can't be controlled. And if that's the case, cool, let's figure that out. Does medication need to be involved? Do herbs need to be involved? Do I need a naturopath? Are my hormones off? Am I eating right? Should I do some acupuncture? Right? You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Understand it takes all that. You just have to figure it out and don't be afraid to figure it out. And don't be afraid to say that you're not happy. Be cool with that shit. If you're not cool, let's figure it out. But it's so important. It is so, so, so important. Yes. Well, Beatrice, I know that is super important. So I appreciate you just sharing all about that and taking the time to chat with us. I could sit here and talk to you for much, much longer about all things life and business, (laughs) but I appreciate you taking time out of your vacation in Europe and joining us. It was such an honor to have you on. No, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm grateful. Much love to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.